I'm Nicandro Yanachi, producer of We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. This week, we'll listen to excerpts from Freedom Day 2017, held on April 13th, Thomas Jefferson's birthday. As many of you may know, Freedom Day was launched in 2015 at the Constitution Center. Our goal is to encourage citizens of all ages across the country to take time to explore and appreciate their unique freedoms as Americans. This year's main program brought together top thought leaders in law, media, education, government, and business for a series of panels exploring what James Madison would think of American democracy today. You're about to hear two of those conversations. First, you'll hear former Congressman Mickey Edwards of the Aspen Institute and Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute talk with Jeff Rosen about the state of Congress, the so-called broken branch, as Norm has dubbed it. Then you'll hear a keynote address from Washington Post opinion writer George Will on the Madisonian Constitution and the future of freedom. You can listen to the full program on our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, which you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Without further ado, here's Jeff with Mickey and Norm. Welcome. Welcome, Norm. Um, Norm, you have this very striking title of a book that was quite a runaway hit um, when it came out, The Broken Branch. And our topic is, what would Madison have thought of our current Congress, and, and what can we do about it today? So Madison feared Congress as the most dangerous branch. Uh, he said in Federalist uh, 48 that the legislative department is everywhere extending the sphere of its activity and drawing all power into its impetuous vortex. What was it that Madison so feared about Congress, and how did he design Congress to alleviate those fears? Every day we worry about the impetuous vortex, uh, don't we? Uh, <laughs> well, I certainly do. So actually, Jeff, in some ways to set the tone, I would refer to the title of the book that followed, which is It's Even Worse Than It Looks. <laughs> and then its uh, successor, It's Even Worse Than It Was, wow. So, which was last year. Uh, <laughs> just, I'm, so, I, the, the next one's going to really yeah. be a downer. So, you know, there were... <laughs> um, and before we're done, I'll plug the next book, which is out in September. You ain't seen uh, nothing yet. That's right. Boy, it's even... Uh, <laughs> Go lie down. It's, it's going to really be done for your lives, but we chose another title. <laughs> what is it called? Uh, you I don't want to so, see it. No, no, what's actually, it, what's it the next book, which is with E.J. Dion and Tom Mann, yeah. is called One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. So... <laughs> On a nonpartisan basis yes. here at the Constitution Center. <laughs> Give you a clue to where we're coming from. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, Madison did think a lot about what to do with Congress. Absolutely. And before we had a Congress, he wanted to have a stronger Congress than he had seen with the legislative branch uh, under the Articles of Confederation. But he worried that you could have a small chamber 
that would seize power and would have its tentacles everywhere, uh, a, a little bit like those uh, uh, machines in uh, the uh, uh, movie uh, with uh, Keanu Reeves where they're constantly seeking to do damage, and that it would move in and uh, uh, take away from the executive branch and from the judicial branch, and that it could bring about that tyranny of a majority, of a small group. So he wanted to be sure that you had not just a separation of powers, but checks on the power of the legislative branch and checks and balances within that branch. And of course, a lot of discussion over how you do that, both within the institution more broadly and in counterposing a House against a Senate. Mickey, tell us more about those Madisonian checks that he instituted to constrain congressional tyranny. Uh, and, uh, how, and why was Madison confident that we could have a constrained Congress? Well, I, I think Madison, first of all, believed that people who had some degree of power position would have an impetus to, you know, to hold on to it, to keep that strength, and that they were going to be the direct representatives of the people themselves, one of the most important parts of the Constitution being that every senator and representative must be an actual inhabitant uh, of the state from which they are elected. They are intended to be the voice of the people, although you know he, he didn't think that they should just obey the people. He was a, he was a Burkean. He didn't know it, but he was a Burkean. Uh, but he imagined that people in Congress would be jealous of their prerogatives and that they would understand their prerogatives and that they would be a check against, you know, the checks and balances was his key thing, more than separation of powers. Uh, and he thought that they would be a check on the executive. But what's happened is you have members of Congress today, you know, when Norm talks about, uh, you know, worse than, than it was or worse than it could be or whatever, you know, the problem is you've got members of Congress who don't really understand what their authority is. And, and so uh, I once gave a talk, I'm on the board of a group called Project on Government Oversight, POGO, uh, and I was speaking to a large group of uh, top level House and Senate staffers who were complaining because trying to get information from the executive branch, they were filing Freedom of Information uh, Act requests. Then I said, well, you know, John Dingell never would have filed a FOIA request. He would have said, get your tail down here or else you're going to pay a price. And, and I think Madison envisioned a Congress that was familiar with the constitutional obligations that they had to make sure that the people were left in charge of their government's decisions. And uh, I, I think, so I, in, in the previous uh, discussions, you've been asking what would Madison think about this or that. I, Madison would look at Congress today and I think he would be appalled by how wrong he was in trying to imagine what people would be like, you know, this far in the future. Norm, look, we, obviously I want to dig into the dysfunctions of Congress today, but before we jump to the present, take us through the constitutional and structural changes in Congress since Madison wrote that may have undermined his vision. A couple big ones. He, the original First Amendment to the Constitution, which you can see out in Signers Hall in our original Bill of Rights, said that there should be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. If that had passed, there'd be 4,000 Congress people today. But Madison thought that kind of representation was important. Talk about that a horror movie. <laughs> well, what, what, what did he have in mind with that 
uh, Amendment, and then talk about the other changes, including the obvious ones, the direct election of senators with sure. the 17th Amendment, ranging up to the decline of the filibuster from last week. Just help us understand that sure. constitutional evolution. So uh, I think it's also important to remember that Madison had uh, just a whole set of different balances in his mind as he thought about this. He wanted, as Mickey said, to have a Congress that would check potentially an executive who might become a dictator. He wanted to make sure that Congress didn't uh, basically move in and run everything. He wanted to make sure that Congress was close to the people. And so originally they talked in the House of Representatives not just about having a small group that uh, uh, members would represent. They talked about having a one-year term. And Madison also wanted to have a recall provision just in case. But of course, we know how obsessed they were about the tyranny of the majority as well. So a part of the balance there was to create a Senate that would not be directly elected, that would be that, as you know, we now know from the uh, very famous and overused uh, discussion uh, uh, where uh, Jefferson uh, talked about the saucer cooling uh, the uh, hot passions of the people, something that was a little bit removed and that would be there to check the House as well. Now, uh, I would mention a few things that I find especially troubling as we look through the time this passed. And remember, this wasn't simply Madison's vision. It was this whole set of compromises large states and small states, uh, and trying to get enough support so that you could actually get a, a constitution uh, with support in the convention and then have support in the public, uh, with the public as a whole. And it was keeping states uh, together. So I look at it now, and you not only have a Congress where people represent well over 600,000 or 700,000 people and sometimes as many as uh, a million people, um, but you also have a Senate where if you look at the vision when the Constitution was created, the difference in population between the smallest state and the largest state was a tiny fraction of what we have now. So, of course, you were going to have more power there that would go to smaller states where you'd get two senators uh, the same as the larger states, but if you have a population gap that's 60 or 70 to 1, the electoral college imbalance aside, you're getting a Senate where more and more power goes to smaller states. And what we see in the modern era is those smaller states are more homogeneous and more white and more rural in a country that is becoming more diverse, more heterogeneous, and more oriented towards urban areas. So you're out of sync in many ways with the population as a whole. And how you deal with that without a significant constitutional change, I'm not sure. At the same time, uh, if you started to make the, the House larger, which would bring members presumably closer to the people, uh, you take away from what I see as the fundamental of our system compared to a parliamentary system. And there, the word Congress was chosen deliberately instead of Parliament. Congress coming from the Latin meaning to come together, Parliament from the French word parler meaning to speak. In a, in a parliamentary system, you have a government. And the government uh, makes policy, and the Parliament, through its majority party, passes the policy, and then the parties argue, question period that you've all seen. They talk. 
Ours was supposed to be bringing people together face to face where they would debate and deliberate and organically develop a larger sense of what might be good for the country. Now, for a whole set of reasons, including uh, airplane travel, uh, campaign finance, and so many other areas, they're not debating and deliberating. And now, you don't even have a sense of heterogeneity even within the Congress, within the House of Representatives, because of the natural sorting combined with the redistricting process, where people represent uh, echo chambers and homogeneous areas. And what I see in the House, you know, the, the larger problems that Mickey has talked about so eloquently that we will get to aside, is people talking past one another. Uh, there isn't debate. And even in the Senate, which is supposed to be a great uh, uh, chamber of deliberation, uh, that's farcical. So a lot of, I think, what Madison had in mind uh, hasn't worked quite the way we wanted it to. And we have to think seriously if there are ways to bring that back, uh, the, the questions of whether the Congress is acting as an independent branch uh, put off to the side. Fascinating. That discussion and the importance of deliberation and debate plays off so beautifully. That really eloquent discussion in the last panel where the judges talked about the importance of sitting down respectfully and deliberating with each other. Mickey, now, take, uh, well, first I have to say, Mickey, your wonderful Rodell program, which brings together state and local elected officials of different perspectives around a common table, begins with a series of readings about the tension between populism and constitutionalism, the topic we're talking about now. And we read Federalist 10, and we read about uh, the ancient Greeks, and we read uh, Fareed Zakaria, and um, What's so striking about these discussions is the state and local people say it's better on our level. There is more of the deliberation and more of the discussion. Why is it better on the state and local level than Congress? And why do you think in Congress this ideal of Madisonian deliberation has eroded? Well, I, you know, first of all, it, it's better. One, one of the things that's happened uh, in the last couple of decades is that members of Congress don't have personal relationships anymore. So uh, the work week in Washington is very short. You go back to your district constantly so you can raise money and so you can help raise money for other people who belong to your political club, which is all the parties are. Uh, and because of that, remember, you know, it's really hard to sit down and do what the judges who were just here could do. They know each other, they're with each other for a long time. Uh, what you know, what one member of Congress knows about another member of Congress uh, is that person belongs to the other enemy team. And uh, uh, that has a, a big bearing on what's changed uh, in the interim. Uh, but I think there are others. I think that uh, today, most members of Congress are so driven by the systems that we have put in place uh, about how you get elected. Uh, you know, in my book I talked about sore loser laws, which most people don't know about, uh, but the laws in 46 states that, that mean that a, the, the hardcore, most ideological, most partisan can control who has access to the ballot. Uh, as Norm mentioned, uh, redistricting. Redistricting is not as big a problem as some people think it is because it doesn't affect the Senate. And I have not noticed the United States Senate to be any you know, great improvement over, over the House. Um, we, we, uh, we always considered the Senate kind of the lower house anyway. Uh, but, um, but, but what's happened is that you could just see this right now with the uh, just, 
Gorsuch becoming Justice Gorsuch uh, and that process, and before that, Merrick Garland being ignored. You know, believe it or not, you, you know this very well, you know, that uh, Felix Frankfurter was confirmed unanimously. William O. Douglas was confirmed unanimously uh, because you were looking at what's temperament, what is uh, reasoning, what, what is education, what's experience. Now, to, now it's about which club do you belong to. Uh, and we are so driven now by partisanship and, and a little disagreement with, with uh, what Daphne said before. You know, it's also, uh, it's the Fox News and the MSNBC and it's the, the way the primaries are. And we have really driven ourselves. Bill Bishop has talked a lot about this with his book, The Big Sort, but others. We have become a divided nation. This is not just members of Congress who are divided and won't talk to people on the other side of the aisle. It's the nation, and it's much worse. It's not polarization that's the problem, it's partisanship. And uh, that's something that is much worse than Madison would have ever envisioned. So, Norm, play off that provocative point. If uh, partisanship is the problem. First, is it right that Madison would be surprised after all the election of 1800 brought all these political parties that he didn't anticipate so extreme that the outgoing Federalists reduced the size of the Supreme Court to deny the incoming Jeffersonian Republicans the right to make Supreme Court appointments. So is it really that much worse? And if it is, is the cause, as Mickey says, the big sort where people geographically and virtually are segregating themselves into echo chambers or are there other causes of this partisanship? There are many of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, Mickey calls it partisanship. I call it partisan tribalism. It is. And uh, I think the reality is that uh, tribalism has uh, not been unknown to America through its history. And it was there in many ways at the beginning. And the sense of punishing enemies and of pitting one side against the other and of stretching the rules to the limit was there. Although mostly that was at a point where we didn't have rules and we were establishing them. And I think uh, Madison, if he had a little time to study where we've gone and, and where we are, would have hoped that we would transcend some of those things. Of course, he didn't think there would be political parties, but he knew that there would be factions. And he wanted to make sure that we could uh, control ambition and control those factions. And, uh, and again, the debate and deliberation was supposed to be where you could see people coming from very different backgrounds. And after you gotten to know them and spent time talking back and forth, you'd appreciate where they were coming from at least. And after a period of extended debate, if you had an outcome, which ideally was going to be a broad leadership consensus, and this is where the late and wonderful and so much missed Daniel Patrick Moynihan was on target and talking about how we don't make social policy without broad leadership consensus and bipartisan consensus, that if you lost, you would still say, you know, I had a chance to get my viewpoint across, and now that's policy, and let's try and make it better. And I think he would be appalled at the fact that uh, 240 years later, we were uh, more immature than a lot of people were at the beginning and worry about how we get out of it. Now, uh, the big sword is, a, I think, a significant problem, but it's not the only problem, and here again, Mickey's right, redistricting doesn't apply to the Senate. But the fact is you've got a lot of uh, states that are quite heterogeneous and diverse. And you do have, I think, a difference in the Senate. Take a good example, the immigration bill uh, uh, back during the Obama term that passed the Senate with a broad bipartisan vote that couldn't even come up in the House of Representatives. 
but the tribalism has taken over in the Senate. And I think what Madison also knew was that you can set up a, set, a system with a constitution, with laws, with rules, but norms drive it. They're like the uh, endoskeleton of the system. And if you don't have the norms, then the whole process begins to erode and fall apart. And what I see is a combination of tribal media as they have emerged and social media magnifying all of that and leaders who have lost sight of the larger purpose of what they're doing, who've allowed those uh, norms to disappear. Uh, you know, in the broken branch, Tom and I wrote about uh, that trite phrase or wonky phrase, the regular order. And that's a really important part of what Congress does. Mickey was a champion of the regular order. Uh, when he was in the minority, whatever it might be, for whatever set of reasons, it was mostly because of his reverence for the system and the institutions. And that's gone by the boards now. Uh, and we've seen it over many, many years. Uh, you know, the filibuster was, the rule was in place from 1975 until 2013. The institution didn't fall apart for 30 or 35 years. And in fact, the norms that operated were such that you could argue that having the threat of a higher threshold was an incentive for leaders to work across party lines. When you have a leader who says, never mind that, I'm just going to use it for everything as a weapon of mass obstruction, then it falls apart. And I think all of that would leave uh, Madison uh, quite distressed uh, right now. So Mickey, I hear Norm saying that the, the problem is partisan tribalism. The symptoms are an inability of Congress to uh, deliberate and function. And as a result, it's not exercising its constitutional role. Uh, it's refusing to declare war or even to invoke the war powers uh, resolution, uh, say some critics. And it's delegated vast amounts of authority to the executive branch in a way that some have claimed is unconstitutional. Yeah. Uh, is that diagnosis right? And say more about the way that Congress, you, you, you recently expressed some sympathy for the Freedom Caucus for at least trying to check the president. Is that what Congress is yeah, well, supposed to do, uh, you know, do? I, and, and should it should it do more of that? You know, what, what the, you know I, I wasn't endorsing, you know, their position on, on the legislation, but what I was saying is that uh, uh, the Freedom Caucus was basically saying to the president what I wish Paul Ryan had said, which is that we don't work for you, you're not the boss, you know, you're a separate branch, uh, and uh, that didn't happen. Uh, I, I wanted to address one thing about the, the factionalism. There, there were parties and factions during Madison's time, but they weren't the same. They would come together on this issue or that issue. So you, you would have the, the mercantilists, you, you would have uh, the people who were for tariffs or whatever, and, and they would be together against the other people. But it wasn't all the time. And what you have now is you just see it, whether it's Supreme Court nominations or a budget fight or a health care bill or whatever. It's you know, all the Democrats were supposed to be on one side, all the Republicans on the other side. Nancy Pelosi was not Speaker of the House. She was the Speaker of the Democratic Party. Paul Ryan is not Speaker of the House. He's Speaker of the Republican Party. Uh, and that's become a large part of the problem. So there is very little actually looking at the substance, the merits of the issue that is on the table, as much as you're looking at which party is bringing it forward. Uh, and if you try to uh, stand up and say, no, but I happen on the merits to agree with that position that the other party has brought up. You're going to get killed in a primary. So much of the problem that we have is systemic. It's the election system we have created. It is all the other 
facets. You know, it, it's the incentive system, it's the reward system. What you reward is what you get. What you punish is what you don't get. And we have created a system, we, we have created a system uh, in which we reward those people who stand firm on principle, never compromise, and we punish those who say, I will sit down and try to work out a common solution. Uh, and that's why we have the problem we've got. Resp so, respond, yeah. Norman, but let me put on the table, this commission that you've both agreed to join and that we are all here to uh, launch is co-chaired by this extraordinary bipartisan coalition. Mike Lee and Chris Coons, Justin Amash and Zoe Lofgren disagree strongly about politics but are very much united by their devotion to constitutional checks on executive authority and to Congress exercising its constitutional role. Is that a hopeful sign? And, we, and let's start to put on the table because our job is to identify them solutions that could respond to the big sort and resurrect Madison. I sure hope so. Um, I wish I could be more optimistic and thank you for, uh, for creating this opportunity, Jeff, which is really important. Uh, one of my heroes in Congress over a long period of time was Bill Frenzel, uh, the late Bill Frenzel from Minnesota. And Bill, for many years when he was in Congress, and I will say after he left Congress, he stayed a hero because he was one of the first members uh, of the Independent Office of Congressional Ethics, and that was a thankless task. But he did it because he loved and cared for the institution and the Constitution. And Bill and his, uh, his wife uh, used to address the incoming freshman classes for a couple of decades. And the pitch from Bill was, this is the greatest experience and the greatest honor you could ever have. The number of people who have actually been elected to the House of Representatives over the long arc of American history is a tiny fraction, a drop in the ocean of all the people in this country. You are gonna be a part of this great institution and a part of it was bring your families to Washington so that they can be a part of this great experience. And then it faded away after, frankly, after Newt became speaker and basically told his members this is a, a, a leper colony. You're here to clean up the leper colony, but don't get leprosy and certainly don't have your children get it either. Keep them away from here. And it created as well a sense of antipathy towards the institution. Members came in not believing they were part of something bigger than themselves. If there was anything bigger than themselves, it was the crusade to blow up government as we know it. And now that has moved to an even uh, higher level. Uh, you know, I've been around Washington for uh, 48 years, and I've known a lot of members of Congress, and I knew a lot in the first 20 or 25 years that I was there who really cared about the institution, devoted themselves to making it better, what uh, a norm that the, the late political scientist Don Matthews called institutional maintenance or institutional patriotism. The number of members now who care about their own institution is a tiny, tiny fraction of all who are there. They're there because it's a vehicle to accomplish other things, whether it's their own personal ambition or a narrow set of ideological goals. And if that's what you have, then the notion that you'll do oversight uh, of uh, legislative uh, accomplishments to make sure that they're carried out by the executive the way they're supposed to, that you will monitor your own internal ethics. And we saw an effort this time to blow up uh, that independent ethics process. That you will be a check on the president and his 
people, including through the nomination and confirmation process in the Senate, or if you have evidence of a kleptocracy developing uh, in the White House or in the executive branch, or if you have misdeeds conducted by an executive in foreign policy or, or elsewhere. And there's just no concern about those things. And that is uh, really troubling, and that you've got at least a few people, some of them former members, some of them, you know, a Justin Amash, who's been heroic in terms of his willingness to take on his own party's president, uh, is an outlier within his own party, a real outlier. Um, and where, where are we going to find others? That's the challenge. Mickey, yeah. last word to you, but is it the Constitution that will unite both sides as it has in the chairmanship of this commission? We have downstairs this incredible proclamation of war from James Polk about Mexico. And Polk says that the Mexican troops have crossed the border and therefore he's allowed to respond without congressional authorization. And a young Whig congressman, Abraham Lincoln, says, show me the spot where Mexican troops cross the border because without that spot, you have no constitutional authority to act. He's known as Spotty Lincoln as a result. Do we have Congress people, Amash, Lee, Coons, Lofgren, I could imagine them making constitutional arguments. What institutional changes would you suggest that would allow that constitutionalism in this Congress to be yeah, resurrected? So uh, your fellow Brits, uh, Bernard Crick, uh, wrote a book called uh, In Defense of Politics where he argued that you know politics is simply the way a free people govern themselves and, and, and it was a great calling uh, and today the idea of politics is a great calling uh, has disappeared and people and I'll bet it's people in the audience too uh, people who watch MSNBC and Fox and all the other people you see politics now is about outcomes it's not about process, but, but what James Madison was about is about process. What the Constitution is about is about process. It's the deliberative way in which we thoughtfully solve our problems together as a common people. Uh, and more and more in our society now, we, we have a, a sense that, I, well, I mean, this came up earlier when we were talking about, you know, now the, uh, you know, the left now is suddenly against big government. They want, they want the states to be able to make their own decisions. Uh, it, it's all about what outcome are you trying to get? And, and the idea of thinking about the, well, actually Norm mentioned it about regular order, the way that the Congress could go about, then you've got to go back to that. You've got to go back to a system where you make your decisions not from the top down, not based on your party ideology, but let's sit down, reason together, look at what all the arguments are, be both passionate and dispassionate, interested and disinterested, and, and talk together about what's the problem, what are the possible solutions, which ones make sense. But you've got to have public support for that. The more the public is demanding the outcome they want rather than a thoughtful, responsive, reasoning system of government, you know, we're, we're not going to get it. Jeff, let me, I know we're Very running nice a little bit over, but uh, just a couple of points. The first is one that was a core of the book, it's even worse than uh, it looks, which is we've got parliamentary parties now operating in a fashion that doesn't fit our constitutional system. And it's bad enough when you have one party having control of all the machinery. If you pass things with one party alone, uh, half the country will see the outcomes as illegitimate. And when you have divided government, you can end up with uh, an inability to act. The second point, which will make our uh, last speaker, uh, my friend George, will uh, have a little bit of apoplexy. Uh, when, 
if you go back 30 years or, or thereabouts, and it's a cliche, but it's true, uh, you'd have people in a community who had done important things. They were lawyers, they were teachers, they were uh, people who'd worked in, in uh, different uh, aspects of the community. And community leaders might go to them and say, you know, we've watched you for a while, you've got a, a great reputation, now it's time for a little public service and we'll help you get to Congress. And you'd have people selected and with the incentive to come in who were there for the right reason. Imagine doing that now. You're gonna go to somebody, uh, I'll go to a Jeff Rosen and say, you know, Jeff, I've watched you. You've done these incredible things. You've been such an important uh, feature in the community. We want you to run for Congress. Now, here's what's gonna happen. <laughs> no, this job is yeah, so much more fun. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's what's gonna happen. From the day that you agree to do this, you're gonna be spending 70% of your time doing call time, raising money, so that you can use that money to run ads against your opponent that shred the reputation that your opponent has developed, which is why he's running, and your campaign advisors will dance a jig if your opponent's children come home from school crying and saying, I didn't know daddy or mommy was so awful and I can't go back to school again. And then if you're lucky in this course and culture, you will get elected. And once you get elected, you will be spending 70% of your time running off the campus of the Capitol to go to designated places where you do call time to raise money for yourself and for your tribe, but also now because you gotta get insurance if some anonymous outside group decides to parachute in in the last two weeks of the campaign with $10 million against you, you'd better raise that money, either find a sugar daddy or have a, a, a bank to make it work. And in the 30% of the time when you're not doing that or running to the airport to go back home, you won't be doing anything to solve policy problems anyhow. Well, so don't is, discourage him. You know, I want him to run. <laughs> <laughs> discourage me. I want to go take a it's aspirin a and miracle just go home. that we have a, a number of fine people who are there for the right reasons. But these are also things that I believe would have Madison uh, saying, oh my God, what's happened? Wow. Um, Mickey gave us a little bit of hope, but Norm, for uh, reminding us that have it's even nice 10 day. times worse than yeah. you thought it was before, but nevertheless, educating us and giving us a great agenda for the next two years. Please join me in thanking Norm Ornstein and Mickey Edwards. And now, George Will with his keynote address, the Madisonian Constitution and the Future of Freedom. Thank you, uh, Jeffrey, very much for that uh, overly kind introduction that <clears throat> proves that not all forms of inflation are painful. <laughs> and thank you for arranging to have this uh, particularly timely meeting about this uh, important subject. <clears throat> Spring has sprung, baseball has begun, the sap is rising. It's enough from Phillies fans. <clears throat> the sap is rising, love is in the air, and two words are on millions of Americans' lips. The words are Chevron deference. I exaggerate only somewhat. It is, however, notable, and I would argue on balance healthy, that the language of the law, and particularly of constitutional law and aspects of the administrative state that are constitutionally problematic, is such a large part of today's political vocabulary. This after an election in which, according to one important exit poll, 20% of voters, one in five, 
cited the composition of the Supreme Court as their foremost concern. The questioning of Chevron deference reflects rising anxiety about disequilibrium among our Madisonian institutions. The anxiety arises from the swollen role of the presidency and of executive agencies and the dereliction of judicial duty in policing the boundaries of the separation of powers. We are meeting this evening at the National Constitution Center in one of the nation's, indeed the world's, great urban spaces, rich in historical resonance, to consider the intersection of something old with something new. What is old is the Madisonian Constitution created in this space. What is new is populism as a fighting faith that is inimical to the Madisonian project and indeed to constitutionalism generally. Populism distilled to its essence is political philosophy distilled to simple majoritarianism. Two, that is, the belief that majorities are inherently virtuous and that virtuous or not, they should encounter minimal institutional impediments to the swift translation of majority desires into public policies. The premise of the Madisonian project is diametrically opposed to that. The premise is that in our republic, majority rule is inevitable, but not inevitably reasonable or equitable. Therefore, there must be an institutional architecture to refine the public will by multiple filtrations that prevent impulsive politics. It is populist impulsivity that, combined with the grotesquely swollen nature of the modern presidency, finds expression in watery anti-institutional Caesarism, whereby a single individual proclaims, I alone can fix it. Madison said, and I quote, although the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable. I will here commit the impertinence of amending the great Madison. He should have said the following. Because the will of the majority is to prevail in all cases where the government acts, for that reason, the scope of government action should be strictly circumscribed. Because my argument is against majoritarianism, permit me a brief, pertinent, autobiographical digression. Before I turned to journalism, or as my father, a professor of philosophy, said before I sank to journalism, <laughs> I prepared to be, and briefly was, a professor of political philosophy. After studying in England, I applied to a distinguished law school and to Princeton's doctoral program in philosophy. You can measure my scholarly seriousness by the fact that I chose Princeton because it is midway between two National League cities, <laughs> one of which we are in. Were it not for baseball, I would be a lawyer. <laughs> However, lawyers dealing with constitutional law are doing political philosophy. It is an American paradox that our nation, which is philosophically disposed to wariness about government, 
the elaboration and application of the founders' political philosophy is primarily done through and by a government institution, the Supreme Court. The title of my Princeton doctoral dissertation was Beyond the Reach of Majorities, Closed Questions in the Open Society. Some of you may recognize the language from Justice Robert Jackson's 1943 opinion in West Virginia versus Barnett, the second of the great flag salute cases. Jackson wrote, the very purpose of a Bill of Rights was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of political controversy, to place them beyond the reach of majorities and officials, and to establish them as legal principles to be applied by the courts. One's right to life, liberty, and property, to free speech, a free press, freedom of worship and assembly, and other fundamental rights may not be submitted to a vote. They depend on the outcome of no elections. Jackson was being faithful to the founders' natural rights philosophy. Rights pre-exist government, which exists to, in the most important word in the Declaration of Independence, to secure those rights. Government does not exist to give maximum scope to majorities, such as the one that enacted West Virginia's law mandating flag salutes. I came by my wariness of majoritarianism by growing up in central Illinois, Lincoln country. I lived in the twin cities of Champaign and Urbana, which are contiguous. Champaign was essentially created by the Illinois Central Railroad that did not like its treatment by Urbana. Urbana is, however, the county seat, and in the red sandstone courthouse, a prosperous railroad attorney from Springfield did some business. This attorney, Abraham Lincoln, was in that courthouse when he learned of the enactment of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It was Lincoln's recoil against this act that ignited his ascent to greatness. The act, introduced by Stephen A. Douglas, the Illinois Democrat, empowered the residents of those territories Kansas and Nebraska, to decide by voting whether or not to have the institution of slavery. The act's premise was that the principle of popular sovereignty is the essence of democracy, and democracy is the essence of the American project, so majority rule should be given maximum scope. Lincoln disagreed with controlled, canny patience and implacable vehemence. So the most luminous career in the history of American democracy took its bearings from the principle that there is more to the American purpose and more to justice than majorities having their way. If justice is what Thrasymachus said it was in his debate with Socrates in book one of Plato's Republic, if, that is, justice is the interest of the strong, then two things follow. First, Lincoln was wrong, and Douglas was right in arguing that justice regarding slavery in the territories was whatever majorities in the territories wanted. The second conclusion that follows is that in democracy, the essential machinery of justice 
is the adding machine. Justice is known when the votes are tabulated, period. Lincoln knew better. Today, however, simple majoritarianism finds its purest expression in the theory and practice of a plebiscitory presidency. One of America's founders, Edmund Randolph, was not wrong in discerning in the office of the presidency the fetus of monarchy. This, even though the Constitution is reticent about presidential duties, beyond conducting diplomacy, making appointments and nominations, commanding such military forces as Congress creates, and taking care that the laws are faithfully executed. If George Washington had not been waiting in the wings, the Constitutional Convention might have devised a different presidential office. And if Virginia's ratifying convention had rejected the Constitution as it nearly did, the soft wax of the presidential office would not have received Washington's stamp because he would not have been a citizen of the United States. Jefferson dis discontinued the practice of presidents delivering in person State of Union addresses to Congress because he considered the scene monarchical and therefore offensive. Today's spectacle of State of the Union addresses with the two parties, <clears throat> excuse me a moment, with the two parties' congressional delegations brain approval or histrionically pouting, we owe significantly to Woodrow Wilson, who restarted the tradition of presidents delivering State of the Union addresses in person to Congress. Madison was so wary of presidential power and so committed to congressional supremacy and sovereignty that as presidents, he even discontinued the practice of his predecessor, Jefferson, of lobbying legislators over dinner. Madison's successor, James Monroe, so totally subscribed to the doctrine of congressional supremacy and to the idea that presidents existed to execute the will of others that he was utterly silent as president on the burning issue of his day, the admission of Missouri to the Union and the status of slavery in Louisiana territory. However, in his 1933 inaugural address, Franklin Roosevelt called for a temporary departure from the normal balance between executive and legislative authority. 84 years later, the temporary departure has produced the following reality. Visitors to Utah Senator Mac Lee's office see displayed two piles of paper. One is a few inches tall. It contains about 800 pages. It is all the laws Congress passed in a particular year. The other pile is 11 feet tall and contains 80,000 pages. Those pages contain all the regulations proposed and adopted in one year by executive agencies. Logically, executive power is secondary, having as its defining duty the execution of the results of the legislature's primary power. And until the late 1920s, the election of the president was doubly indirect. He was elected by presidential electors who in turn were elected by state legislators. Madison warned in Federalist 10 
that, quote, enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. But Hamilton in Federalist 68 predicted a constant probability of the presidency being occupied by characters preeminent for ability and virtue. Hamilton was, as Harvey Mansfield says, assuming that people would have the virtue to appreciate virtue. <laughs> that assumption is, to say no more, complicated by modern communications technologies, which have served the inflation of the plebiscitary presidency. In the summer of 1901, President McKinley at his Canton, Ohio home was approached by a photographer McKinley laid aside his cigar, saying, we must not let the young men of this country see their president smoking. Good grief. <laughs> this was the fetus of the pernicious idea that presidents are and should be our moral tutors. Theodore Roosevelt, whose presidency was the fetus of the modern presidency, was the first president filmed by a movie camera. His cousin used radio to make the presidency intimate with the public. Television is enslaved to cameras, which are superficial news gathering instruments, and television needs something to point cameras at. Television therefore needs presidents to simplify this need. Twitter might have been invented for a president who became president because he can say everything he knows about anything in 140 <laughs> characters. <laughs> president, president Grant had a staff of three. President Cleveland answered the White House doorbell himself. But soon there was a kind of arms race that the executive was bound to win. The political scientist James Q. Wilson noted that institution in rivalrous relationships with each other come to resemble each other. Wilson's dear friend and mine, Pat Moynihan, thus postulated the iron law of emulation. He noted that in 1902, Theodore Roosevelt built the West, the West Wing of the White House. Hitherto, presidential staffs consisting of three or four people did their work in the White House living room. So in 1903, the House of Representatives built itself an office building. The Senate followed suit next year. But the presidency would thrive as the rhetorical presidency. Presidents would eclipse Congress by being leaders. The term leader appears 12 times in the Federalist Papers, 11 times disparagingly. <laughs> the founders believed that presidential appeals to and manipulation of public opinion would be an anti-constitutional preemption of deliberative processes. There was, until this century, a common law of presidential rhetoric. Presidents spoke infrequently and about little. Washington averaged three public speeches a year. Adams, one. Jefferson, five. Madison, who was president during a war that burned down his house, gave none. Until the 20th century, presidents communicated primarily with the legislature, not the people, and communicated in written messages suitable for deliberative reasoning. 
Then, modern technologies of transportation and communication gave presidents new capacities. And Woodrow Wilson supplied a theory, both progressive and populist, for using those capacities. Presidents, he said, should engage in what he called interpretation, meaning the discovery of what is in the hearts of the masses, or what would be in their hearts if the masses were sensible. <laughs> Soon, presidents were everywhere, moving about by railroad and then airplane. They were on the air by radio and television. America was on its way to today's notion of the president as tribune of the people, constant auditor of the nation's psyche, molder of public opinion. The hope of progressives was that by making popular, even charismatic presidents, the focus of the nation's political consciousness, the public would be content to be governed by detached, disinterested, and anonymous experts who, because they were obedient to plebiscitary presidents, would be cloaked in derivative democratic legitimacy. I have often thought that the most important decision taken in the 20th century was the decision about where to locate Princeton's graduate college. college is located where it is, away from the main campus, rather than on the main campus where the university's president, Woodrow Wilson, wanted it to be. Wilson, disappointed, had one of his tantrums, resigned from Princeton, went into politics, and ruined the 20th century. <laughs> Again, I simplify and exaggerate somewhat. Wilson was the first president to criticize the American founding, which he did thoroughly. He rejected the essence of the founder's philosophy, the doctrine of natural rights. And he rejected the crux of the constitutional provision for protecting those rights, the separation of powers. Regarding natural rights, he urged Americans not to read the Declaration of Independence's first two paragraphs which he dismissed as 4th of July folderol. He understood that the natural rights doctrine entails limited government, an idea he considered an 18th century anachronism. He considered the separation of powers intolerable in modern conditions, which he thought demanded a large and nimble government quickly responsive to the president's will. Justice Antonin Scalia, with characteristic asperity, wrote, if you want aspirations, you can read the Declaration of Independence, but there is no such philosophizing in the Constitution, which is a practical and pragmatic charter of government. I respectfully dissent. Are we to conclude that philosophy is impractical and unpragmatic? Granted, there is no philosophizing in the Constitution until we put it there by construing the Constitution as a charter of government for a nation whose purpose is defined by the Declaration. Justice Scalia said that, and again I quote, the whole theory of democracy is that majority rules. That is the whole theory of it. Well, if that is the whole theory of democracy, then democratic theory is not very interesting. 
What then is interesting is what should begin after this theory is accepted. What should begin is reflection about the institutional and cultural measures necessary to increase the likelihood that majorities will be reasonable and about what things should be protected by a judiciary as beyond the reach of majorities. Populism seeks to reverse this, giving majority rule priority over liberty and over rights and over due process when these things conflict as they frequently and inevitably will with majority impulses. Democracy and distrust should always be braided. American constitutionalism and its necessary corollary, judicial review, amount to institutionalized distrust. The temperature of American politics is high today in part because the stakes of today's debate are high. We are not just arguing as we always do about the proper scope and actual competence of government. We also are arguing about which of two Princetonians' visions will prevail. That of James Madison of the class of 1771 or that of Woodrow Wilson of the class of 1879. The essential drama of democracy derives from the inherent tension between the natural rights of the individual and the constructed rights of the community to make such laws as the majority deems necessary and proper. Natural rights are affirmed by the Constitution. Majority rule, circumscribed and hopefully modulated, is constructed by the Constitution. The Declaration is not just chronologically prior to the Constitution, it is logically prior. Because, as Timothy Sandifer has written, the Declaration is the Constitution's conscience. The Declaration sets the framework for reading the Constitution. As Lincoln said in his House Divided speech, the Constitution is the frame of silver for the apple of gold, which is the Declaration. Silver is valuable and frames serve an important function, but gold is more valuable and frames are less important than what they frame. It is therefore a matter of constitutionally important symbolism that the Constitutional Convention met in the room in which the Declaration of Independence was debated and endorsed. The Constitution affected a course correction from the Articles of Confederation, but did not affect a rupture with the nation's fundamental purpose and destiny. The Constitution continues what the Declaration began. It is not true that, as Dr. Stockman says in Heinrich Ibsen's play, The Enemy, the, An Enemy of the People, that the majority is always wrong, it is true that the majority often is wrong and that the majority often has a right to get its way even when wrong. The challenge, which is especially important and especially difficult when populist fevers are raging, is to determine the borders of that right and to have those borders policed by a non-majoritarian institution, the judiciary. In 1801, in Jefferson's first inaugural address, he said, 
Though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable. That the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. Two years later, the cousin who Jefferson detested, John Marshall, buttressed Jefferson's principle. In Marbury B. Madison, Marshall established judicial review. This practice, exercised with proper vigor, is a bulwark against the essence of populism, the belief that majorities should always have their way. Professor Alexander Bickel, preoccupied with what he called the counter-majoritarian dilemma, called the Supreme Court a deviant institution because with judicial review, it circumscribes the right of majorities to have their way. Judge Don Willard of Texas Supreme Court has, I think, a better understanding. He correctly says that the US Constitution is irrefutably framed in proscription. It declares an emphatic no to myriad government undertakings, even if majorities desire them. Judicial review sh should annoy populace because it means preventing any contemporary majority from overturning, overturning yesterday's supermajority, the one that ratified the Constitution. Federal judges are accountable to no current constituency. But when construing the Constitution, they are duty-bound to be faithful to the constituency of those who framed and ratified it. This is how the Constitution constitutes a polity. Madison was born a subject of George II. He died a citizen of the Republic during the presidency of the first important populist, Andrew Jackson. Today's populist, whose only complaint against big government is that it is not throwing its considerable weight around on their behalf, should heed the words of Jackson as he wrote in his greatest state paper. In his message explaining his veto of the reauthorization of the Bank of the United States, he wrote, if government would confine itself to equal protection and, as heaven does the rains, shower its favors alike on the high and the low, the rich and the poor, it would be an unqualified blessing. But it is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes. Just so. Today's populace needs to, need to have a Jacksonian epiphany. They need to realize that big government, meaning the administrative state that permeates and micromanages American life, is inherently regressive. That is, it inevitably and constantly redistributes wealth upward. It is the wealthy, after all, the wealthy, the confident, the articulate, and the well-lawyered who can understand the administration's the administrative state's opaque and arcane processes and can work its many gears and pulleys as they pursue their rent-seeking. There is a reason why five of America's 10 richest counties surround Washington like piglets surrounding a lactating sow. 
Sentimentalists about democracy generally insist that its inadequacies result because voters' views are sensible but ignored. It is, however, more often the case that democracy produces unfortunate results because voters' views are foolish but honored. Often the problem is not that government is unresponsive, but that it is too responsive. And usually, it responds not to majorities in any meaningful sense, but to small, compact, intense factions. Am I too gloomy? Well, the philosopher Michael Oakeshott said, it is characteristic of political philosophers that they take a somber view of the human condition. They deal in darkness. Madison certainly did. Populists do not. The language of populism flatters its adherents. They are virtuous because they are many. Because they are many, they are not of the elites. And all social problems are results of elite failures or connivances. Madison knew better. Madison knew that the question is never whether elites shall govern, rather it is which elites shall govern. So he knew that the problem of democracy is to get consent to government by worthy elites. Progressives and today's populists have more in common than either cohort can comfortably acknowledge. To understand their similarities and their shared aversion to Madisonian principles, consider Professor Randy Barnett's distinction between the Republican Constitution and the Democratic Constitution. The debate between the meaning of the first three, the debate concerns the meaning of the first three words of the Constitution's preamble, we the people. Those who embrace the democratic constitution believe that we the people is a collective entity. Those who embrace the republican constitution think of we the people as individuals. The democratic constitution is a device for giving power and priority to the will of a collective, the majority of the people. Any principle or practice, such as judicial review, that impedes the swift, unmediated transmission of the will of the majority into policy is presumptively illegitimate. And the only individual rights that are legally enforceable are rights affirmed by the majority explicitly. In sharp contrast, the Republican Constitution is a device for limiting government. This includes limiting government's translation of majority desires into laws and policies when those conflict with the government's primary business of securing the natural rights of individuals. Barnett believes that at bottom, today's American politics pits Lockeans against Habesians. Those who favor the Republican Constitution take their bearings from John Locke believing that individual liberty is America's principle. Those who favor the democratic constitution take their bearings from Thomas Hobbes, giving highest priority to government having sufficient power to pursue whatever social ends the majority desires, even if the rights of the individual must be abridged. Progressives and populists think America's fundamental dedication is to a process majoritarian decision-making. 
Madisonians think America's fundamental dedication is to a condition, liberty. Progressives and populists rally around the right of the majority to have its way. Today's Madisonians stress rigorous judicial protection of individual rights, especially those of private property and the freedom of contract that define and protect the zone of sovereignty within which people are free to do as they please. In his first inaugural, Lincoln, addressing himself to my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, expressed a patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people. Note the nuances. Confidence must be patient because the justice of the people can be counted on only ultimately. Populism does not deal in nuances. Madison did and Madisonians do. They know what happens only ultimately leaves a lot of time for institutions and processes to refine and if necessary to stymie the will of the majority. So, Madison said, in Republican government, the majority, however composed, ultimately gives the law. And in language strikingly similar to that which Justice Jackson used in the 20th century, Madison wrote, along with the principle of liberty, a constitution embodies the principle of self-restraint. The people have resolved to put certain rules out of the reach of temporary impulses springing from passion or caprice and to make the rules the permanent expression of their calm thought and deliberate purpose. I believe that Madison, properly understood, is the founder of American conservatism, properly understood, and that populism is everything conservatism is not. But you've heard quite enough from me. I am standing between you and a reception where there will be adult beverages and adult conversation, perhaps about, among other things, that interesting contemporary topic, Chevron deference. Thank you very much. Today's show was engineered and edited by Jason Gregory and David Stotts. It was produced by yours truly, Nicandro Yanachi. The host of We the People is Jeffrey Rosen. As I mentioned earlier, you can listen to all of Freedom Day 2017, including great panels on the media, presidency, and more, on our companion podcast, live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Continue today's conversation, as always, on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate, at bit.ly slash constitutionweekly. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally... Despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country, like you, who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work 
including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Nicandro Yanachi.